I've been in this environment and ecosystem of post-secondary education and workforce and go to many conferences, listen to a lot of great um, wise people talk about education and, and, and work. And I was always kind of marveling at how everyone agrees intuitively with the idea of lifelong learning. We all just sort of know, yeah, we, we, we do need to engage in lifelong learning, but then the next piece is always missing. It's always just sort of an assumed, well, we'll figure it out, right? Something will exist for us to actually be those lifelong learners. And when you actually really take a very fine look at the systems that we have set up, very little of our infrastructure and our systems and our architecture are actually set up in a way that make it okay and easy and seamless for us to return to learning and skill up and retool ourselves and stay competitive in the job market. and welcome to this episode of Ingenious Hue, where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Michelle Weiss. Michelle is the Vice Chancellor of Strategy and Innovation at National University System. She's also the author of a book that has received considerable attention in recent months, Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. Thinkers 50 named Michelle one of 30 management and leadership thinkers in the world to watch in 2021. And Dr. Weiss's work over the last decade has concentrated on preparing the working age adults for the jobs of today and tomorrow. She has served as a senior advisor at Imaginable Futures and was also the chief innovation officer at Strata Education Network, as well as Southern New Hampshire University. With Clayton Christensen, she co-authored Higher Education, Mastery, Modularization, and the Workforce Revolution, while leading the higher education practice at Christensen's Institute for Disruptive Innovation. There is so much more that I could say, but I'm eager to start this conversation. So we will include a link to Michelle's full bio in the episode show notes. Michelle, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here with you. We like to start by learning something about the professional journey of our guests. What's the backstory that leads to your recent appointment as National University's inaugural Vice Chancellor for Strategy and Innovation? Yeah, it's a it's a very uh, windy road <laughs> that got me here. Um, I had sort of a more traditional trajectory on the front end of my career where went into a PhD program, went into academia, was on a tenure track um, path. And it was on that on that path that I realized uh, that I wasn't 100% sure this was the direction I wanted to go in. Um, I was an English professor up at Skidmore College. I just had a baby um, and I was about to write my monograph for tenure and feeling the real desire to uh, touch and impact a much more diverse learner population and realizing the constraints that I was working within. I had an incredible job, an incredible learning environment, real support along the way, but I just realized that my sense of purpose and mission was off. Um, and it was a hard, it was a hard moment where coming from sort of a high achiever mentality and kind of checking off all the boxes, thinking you're on the path to success and realizing 
success doesn't equal fulfillment, right? Um, and so it was then that I kind of made my first pivot. And I think the the story of my life has basically been about transitions and thinking about job transitions uh, for more underestimated populations. And it was from this moment of a real great transition where there's no turning back. If you decide to leave, leave academia, you're not really allowed and welcomed back um, into the into the process. Um, but uh, you know, I, I did make the decision, and I, I had the great fortune of finding that sense of mission, getting to work with service members who were transitioning out of the military into civilian careers, and working from there. Every bit of um, new knowledge that I was gaining and learning kind of built on that new knowledge, a new set of skills. So, you know, got a real good view into online nonprofit education. From there, moved on to work with Clayton Christensen, where I got an incredible bird's eye view into every startup, for-profit, venture-backed approach to education technology. Um, went to Southern New Hampshire University and put the theories of disruption into practice, building these different innovation labs. And uh, did the same at Shroud Education Network, where I built the Institute for the Future of Work and got immersed in future of workforce issues. Um, and from there, started to realize the incredible stuckness of our working age adults. And that's been the crux of all of my research and my book and the work that I currently do, for instance, at National University System, um, very much trying to think through how do we navigate this very turbulent, uncertain world of work? How do we make these job changes more seamless for folks who lack access to the right kinds of career navigation supports, wraparound support services, and, and ways to prove that they can do the work ahead? That's a great story. And you know, it strikes me that looking back, you can now see how the dots connect. But when you were at that very important pivot point, uh, having to decide between whether you're going to stay in the academy or pivot out, uh, that must have taken real courage. I think it does take real courage, right? It does. It was a huge risk. Uh, I mean, it was a it was a big, big risk to take. Um, the good news was at that point, though, I was willing to start from zero. I wasn't thinking that, you know, someone would necessarily give me a chance to leverage my existing skill set into another domain, I kind of knew it was going to be hard for me to prove myself. There's this random woman with a PhD in English. What can she do? Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, when I look back retrospectively, I can see very clearly the connections between all of these really interesting transitions I've made. Um, but thankfully what was fascinating was even though in my mind, I was ready to really be the lowest person on the ladder and was open to that and excited to learn. What was interesting was when I started with that ed tech startup, they were actually seeking someone who could speak the language of faculty members, who could oh. speak the language of academia to translate technology and their business challenges to that faculty oriented audience. And so it was actually kind of the perfect bridge that I, that I launched from. Yeah. Wow. So when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> <laughs> Originally, I wanted to be an artist, which okay. my mom quickly cut down and told me, uh, you're never going to you're never going to survive. Being an artist. <laughs> I think partly because she had tried. Um, and then it was I wanted to be a teacher 
Uh, I really wanted to be a teacher. And I really, that was one of the hardest lessons for me is I thought I wanted to teach for the rest of my life. Um, mm -hmm. I had gone specifically to a more teaching oriented institution. I didn't want the R1, um, you know, tenure track experience. Um, but what I realized was uh, teaching really is, is, is special. It's performative. It's, it's exhausting for an introvert like me. <laughs> um, it also, for me, ultimately felt like kind of an ill-fitting suit. Uh, it never quite fit right. And I was struggling to realize, oh my goodness, I have gone to six years of grad school to do this and, and it may not be the right thing. So it was deeply terrifying. Yeah, I can only imagine. And yet, as I look at your career trajectory, I see all kinds of evidence of your teaching, mm -hmm. but perhaps in different ways. And so it, it does, it does uh, look as if you've come full circle, but are living that out differently, which, which leads to your book, um, your most recent book, uh, Long Life Learning. I love the title, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even exist yet. As I had mentioned at the outset, your book has received a lot of press uh, and attention. And for decades, we've been hearing about the importance of lifelong learning. And yet, you approach this from a different, a different direction. So can you tell us why did you write the book? And what do you mean by long life learning? And who, who did you intend uh, the book for? Yeah, it's hard to say, right? Long life <laughs> learning, because we all want to say lifelong learning. I've had people introduce me and say, she's written a book called Lifelong Learning. <laughs> it's our, it's our, and, and it's precisely for that reason that, that, that we named it uh, Long Life Learning. And the, the, the crux of it is, you know, I've been in this environment and ecosystem of post-secondary education and workforce. And go to many conferences, listen to a lot of great um, wise people talk about education and, and, and work. And I was always kind of marveling at how everyone agrees intuitively with the idea of lifelong learning. We all just sort of know, yeah, we, we, we do need to engage in lifelong learning. But then the next piece is always missing. It's always just sort of an assumed, well, we'll figure it out right? Something will exist for us to actually be those lifelong learners. And when you actually really take a very fine look at the systems that we have set up, very little of our infrastructure and our systems and our architecture are actually set up in a way that make it okay and easy and seamless for us to return to learning and skill up and retool ourselves and stay competitive in the job market. There isn't any of that stuff really when you think about opportunities for people who are 25, year old, 25 years old and older, right? And so our systems, our architecture, everything, our incentives, our financial aid structure, it's all set up to work around a much younger learner profile. And so the the idea here is how do we how do we then shift toward action? How do we actually change and stop talking about it but actually start doing and building? And for me the the greatest impetus and catalyst was for me to read more about these different kinds of projections from futurists and experts on aging and longevity who were saying, you know, we may live a whole lot longer than we were expecting. And some of them were even saying, 
yeah, the first people to live to be 150 years old have already been born. And I remember hearing that and it blew my mind. It usually blows most people's minds, right? To conceive of 150 years old, does that mean our work lives then? Like I think my, my initial thing is like, how, how do you sustain that, right? And how do you not only live a healthy 150 year old life, but how, how in the world are we gonna sustain that? And is that a 60, 80, 100 year work life? Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that mental model was so helpful in getting me out of my analysis paralysis, where, mm -hmm. you know, with future of work trends, you're hearing about all this automation, the scary parts of AI and machine learning and how they're going to destroy jobs. And um, and, you know, make us have to compete for work and all these scary prognostications, but those can be so paralyzing that you don't know what you're supposed to do about any of that. But when I heard about a longer life and then thought about a longer work life, it then becomes very easy to think about, oh my gosh, we need to start building this, this, and this, right? We need to start actually pulling together our resources, our solutions in a way that makes it easier for us to navigate this longer life filled with more job transitions than we ever dreamed of. Hmm. Well, let me push you a little bit more in terms of the cracks in the system that you write about in your book. What, which, which ones do you consider to be the most urgent uh, needing to be addressed? That's one question. And then the, the second has to do with the pandemic itself. Um, I think you, you, did you finish the book before the pandemic or right as the pandemic was uh, right as the pandemic was kicking off yeah okay um, great time to publish a book right <laughs> I had turned my final draft in to my editor two weeks before lockdowns began oh, really oh gosh yeah so it, so the, the question then is you know do you do you feel like any of your findings uh have changed at all, particularly in terms of your assessment of what's wrong with the system as mm -hmm. it currently is? Yeah, it's a good question. And thankfully, I didn't have to rewrite the book. I had to tweak <laughs> certain parts of it, but the, the those two questions actually are answered by the same answer here, which is for me, the pandemic actually did some really incredible work <laughs> For, for me in terms of trying to shine a light on the incredible stuckness of working age adults. So my focus has always been on underestimated learners. So folks who have a high school degree and or some college, they are not thriving in the labor market today. They are not earning a living wage. And it turns out that there, prior to the pandemic, there were close to 41 million people in this bucket. It's a huge swath of our of our workforce, right? And, you know, despite all of these conversations around the future of work, the present of work was a huge challenge and barrier for those 41 million. So I was trying to figure out how do I shine a light on this particular population? What the pandemic then did was shine that light, shine a floodlight on that, that population, because what we saw was at one point close to 40 million unemployment claims of folks who were unable to translate and transfer their existing skill set into a new domain. So when the retail and hospitality sectors really just kind of were decimated, when you know, when when our when the global economy kind of shut down, 
you realized particular sectors, even though we know there are deeply transferable skills, you know, from customer service in one industry to potentially a more, you know, exciting and promising pathway in another, um, you know, industry, there was no mechanism set up to help people and millions of people transition in that way. And so that's where that was just sort of the perfect floodlights on the the major crack in the system, right? We have no skills-based way, no equitable way of helping people move seamlessly to better work. And what do you make of the, the great resignation? All of the, the chatter and the, uh, you know, the talk about the great resignation and what that means, does that play in at all to this work? It does. It's, it's also another example of where the economy is doing some work for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so one of the, um, one of the things that, you know, was so, it, it's sort of so commonsensical and it's kind of incredible that so few employers and organizations are doing it, but the major void uh, in our in our sort of marketplace in our economy is that employers have really disinvested from training their existing workforce. They have, you know, in this kind of opportunity of build or buy your workforce, we've consistently opted to buy talent. We'll go in and try to find someone with, when, with precisely the right work experience to then recruit them and bring them in internally versus taking our existing staff and building their skill sets for the future. Um, and so the, the, the problem is there's all these middlemen involved in terms of workforce tech, different kinds of vendors. No one's actually tracking what works. Hundreds of billions of dollars are being flushed into the system without any understanding of what it's actually doing for our employees. But we know that if we actually take our people and really fully understand the granular skill sets they bring to the table, there's a good contingent of, of our workforce that we can skill up into those, those jobs of the future. So my intent with a lot of the, the research was to sort of shine a light on those opportunities for employers to get more skin in the game and to take on more of the onus so that it's not always the individual's burden to skill up, but that the employer has a, has a real heavy role to play here. And employees are looking for their employers to invest in them. And now what we have is an incredibly tight labor market where people cannot find the talent that they need. People are opting out of the workforce. We also have had this massive she session, right? Where women have retreated from the workforce. Um, and now we see that in this, in this fray of not being able to actually secure and buy the talent that you need, employers are now going to have to take a very good look at their existing workforce and say, what can I do with the, with the talent gold that I'm sitting on today, right? Mm -hmm. And that generally has not been the mindset of employers to think of their people as that kind of gold mine. But that's the way we have to shift our priorities and, and begin to really think through how do we begin to fill in the skills gaps of our people to, to build the growth strategy of the future. Indeed. Let, let me ask you to go a little deeper in terms of the skills that will be most needed uh, for the jobs of the future. You talked about some trends, some of the essential trends, AI, technology, um, 
other trends that you see as being really uh, important in terms of understanding what's needed? And then what are the skills that are going to be most in demand for the jobs that are associated with these trends? Yeah, I think the simplest way to think about trends and, and what we kind of build toward is as we think about our learners, our, our adult learners, our, you know, our workers, we need to think about how do we cultivate the best problem solvers in the world, right? Like how do we build learning environments, work environments that cultivate the best problem solvers who can deal with highly ambiguous circumstances so that if they're dealing with AI, they have enough of kind of this mix of human and technical skills to understand with enough depth what that machine learning is trying to do and then use that sense of ethics that we have internally, a sense of judgment, you know, use our emotional intelligence to interrogate what we see happening to make that right kind of coordination and complementary um, relationship with robots and machine learning make sense for the future. So it's really, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of work we can do as educators in particular um, to think through how do we really enable our learners to engage in, in problem-based learning, right? That we expect them to encounter in the real world. We expect bumps to occur, things they can't ever anticipate. How do we see how they respond? How do we build their resilience, right? How do we, how do we cultivate change management skills in our people? This is one of the biggest um, opportunities to think about organizational design, organizational behavior, um, change management principles, because the, the future we face is one of great flux and great adaptation. And yet those skills are sort of more specialized skills that we maybe offer to our mid or senior level managers, right? But these are the skills that we all have to embrace and, and understand. Otherwise, we will meet every new opportunity with fear. I think that's the, you know, as you think about the way our brain is wired, we perceive newness as danger and we have to work against it to sort of think about, you know, how do we think about this instead as a problem to solve? There has never been a better time to study higher education. And the Bay Path University master's degree program in higher education administration has been designed with this in mind. Through the highly practical and relevant coursework, you will learn to identify emerging trends and apply cutting edge practices to address the challenges faced by higher education professionals today. Classes start every eight weeks and are taught entirely online by supportive professionals who have deep knowledge and skill in the practice of higher education. This Bay Path program offers unique concentrations in enrollment management, institutional advancement, and online teaching and program administration. There's even a joint entry track with a doctoral program in higher education leadership and organizational studies for highly qualified applicants. Whether you are already a higher education professional or you're looking to switch professions to work at a college or university, the Masters in Higher Education Administration from Bay Path University will expand your career opportunities and provide you with personal mentoring and lifelong networks of like-minded professionals. Take the next step. 
visit our website at baypath.edu slash higherededmin. The need for qualified administrators in higher education has never been greater. Again, that's baypath.edu slash higherededmin. the book uh, and, and in other interviews you've given, you uh, have made the point that the one and done educational model is a thing of the past, which I think is an interesting, um, interesting notion to put out there. And you talk about that in uh, terms of the 100 plus 150 plus year life that you just mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, this suggests then a need to rethink the educational ecosystem to accommodate that kind of a mind shift, I would imagine. So can you say a little bit more about, about what you would envision? How, how does the educational system, and maybe ecosystem is a better way to put it, need to shift uh, in order to accommodate uh, that kind of a, a change? Yeah. So Melissa, if someone told you, you need to go back to school, what would your thought be? Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I love to go to school, but I'm, <laughs> I may be a little unusual. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you are. You know, I think for most people going back to school is not the most attractive um, prospect, right? Especially for folks who have some college and no degree, um, yeah. or haven't experienced college, that's not the consumer experience necessarily that they want to repeat because they've yeah. maybe had uh, a pretty bad learning experience or one that was inflexible that didn't meet them where they were or didn't flex to the to the needs of their life. Um, and I think that's the, you know, as we think about the work we need to do within our ecosystem, how do we think about building in more seamless pathways for learners. So this is why I talk about kind of on and off ramps. How do we, like, as if you were imagining kind of a clover leaf on a highway, how, how can we actually design our system so that when someone does need to actually attain and acquire some new skills, they can just kind of take that little off ramp, but then quickly on ramp back on, right? Like that it's very seamless. It just kind of happens in that loop. They get what they need. And ideally while they're working, so they don't have to give up on their wages and earnings to, to skill up. Um, when we kind of take a look and step back at what we have today, it's just not set up in that way, right? We have stopouts, we have gaps in our resume. We have things that look taboo or confusing to a future employer. How do we make it so that these skills also resonate in the language of, of a future employer who's, who might be able to say, ah, I understand what that means, that this person can now do this. Mm -hmm. The other piece of it is when we go back to school, uh, for folks like you and me who maybe already have degrees, we don't necessarily want a whole new degree or someone who never got a college degree. They may not ever want a college degree. They just might need a specific skill set in negotiation or, you know, whatever the thing may be, how do we, how do we set up our infrastructure as educators and learning providers to give people precisely what they need so that they can make progress and not be out of the workforce or not be struggling and trying to, you know, juggle so many responsibilities at once. 
I think that's the real opportunity of our ecosystem from a learning provider's perspective. But then on, you know, as we think about the accountability of employers, employers really do need to take the onus of education and training on themselves. They need to build it into the workday. It can't always be the expectation of learners to skill up outside of the workday. Um, how do we carve out 30 minutes or an hour a day or an hour a week to build our employees' new skills? Uh, that is the, that's the real work ahead. Yeah, and boy, wouldn't that be an attractive uh, pull for uh, recruiting a new employee to, to be able to offer that as a part of your, your benefit package that you can advance your career by taking training or going back to school and have it be a part of your work life. I would think that would be very, very attractive. I think you're right. And I think in this very tight labor market, employers are going to have to go out of their way to demonstrate how they're building in career mobility for these job candidates to say, we believe in you. We are actually creating these internal pathways for you to develop and progress, right? Mm -hmm. And we're going to invest in you. That's going to be a huge selling point for a potential candidate to, to, to make that shift, right? It's right now a buyer's market. Uh, <laughs> the employee gets, gets a little bit of leverage right now to, to understand what the employer has in store for them, right? So thinking about colleges and universities specifically, and you're now working at uh, a very large higher ed system, uh, what opportunities are there that, that colleges and universities might or could take advantage of as we're thinking about the 100, 150 year life. Um, you know, so many colleges and universities have a, they have a department of continuing ed or a department of lifelong learning. Um, I'm, in, I'm envisioning that this would look different with your model. Yeah, it is interesting, right? Because we have so many schools that do have a, a division of continuing ed. I really think um, all universities will be playing that role. That will be our core mission, uh, ultimately, is serving that lifelong learning space. Because if you actually look at projections of our population <laughs> and the, the traditional learner population, it's just going to get smaller and smaller over time. In the 2030s, there's a huge cliff that we can expect mm -hmm. in terms of enrollments. So we need to look at this much larger universe of learners and figure out how do we truly, we talk about meeting learners where they are. It's a beautiful turn of phrase. We rarely actually execute on it. Right, we rarely actually offer true flexibility, true convenience, things that are not so time-based and synchronous. It's 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 hard for us to shift in that direction. So for me, the the objective is pretty clear. Um, I think we've been talking about stackable credentials for a long time. You actually see very few true examples of this coming to life. Um, I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of understanding what and how our learners want to um, consume education, right? We're all mobile first now. You know, how are we designing for a mobile experience that can actually compete with every single other distraction out there, right? How do we make a truly engaging learning experience where people aren't always going to be on a desktop having a 
a learning experience in that way? How do we do it in a hands-on, in a work-based environment, right? Um, and how do we give people precisely what they need as opposed to a bundled or chunked out? What we're doing with stackables right now is we're sort of chunking it into smaller pieces, but we're not actually solving the problem of how do we cultivate the best problem solvers in the world, right? How do we give people that bite-sized learning experience sometimes, that deeper learning experience that they need, the project-based experience that they need? Um, these, are the, these are the opportunities ahead is how do we truly reimagine the learning experience and the size of the learning experience? How is it a right-sized learning experience and personalized for a learner? That's, that's I think, the real work to do when, when it comes to bringing this idea of a stackable to life. Have you seen any uh, innovative models at colleges or universities that you 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 can look you can point to and say yeah that's that's exactly what we need to be doing for sure uh, when it comes to some really amazing project based learning approaches there are you know incredible design based approaches uh, a lot of engineering schools that have been um, you know uh, tinkering with the grand challenges work out of the national academies those kinds of programs are, are incredible. They're just not necessarily spreading beyond sometimes like the silo of engineering to, you know, those same design principles can go for any discipline, right? We can right. do, we can do the same kind of grand challenge work systematically from your first day, you know, in a learning experience all the way through graduation. We tend to think of them as often like capstone experiences or something you do in your thesis but this is something that has to be just kind of regularly embedded throughout. Um, it's, it's hard because we are so constrained by Title IV funding within higher ed, right? And time-based constraints and the way that we deliver financial aid that so many of the innovations are kind of tethered to this, this strange structure that we need to adhere to. Um, but you know, I point out in the book as an example, a great um, certificate first approach from BYU Pathway where <clears throat> the acknowledgement is that a learner has to be financially secure before they can consider a longer educational experience. So how do you give them that market relevant certificate first? They realize the value of education, it retains them, they see, oh my gosh, education really pays off, I'm gonna keep going. It's an incredible retention mechanism. Um, I can tell you from our university perspective, we're really trying to think about how do we bring this idea of precision education to life? How do you, how do you give a learner just what they need and not more with the idea that if they are truly that lifelong learner we're trying to serve and be a trusted advisor to, they'll come back for more because we all are going to have to continuously return to learning in order to remain relevant. I think we're all going to have to be watching national and the work that you're doing there. I have a feeling there'll be some very innovative things coming out of your area in the We're working the on months. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the barriers, Michelle? Uh, you've worked, you have worked in an academic institution. You've been around a lot of them. Um, what fundamental changes need to be made other than changing Title IV and some of the regulatory um, barriers. But what other what other changes need to be made in order to allow for the kind of overarching uh, mind shift that you are advocating for? 
Yeah, it's it's a great question. There are, you know, a tremendous set of barriers when it comes to driving innovation from within. And that's not just within higher ed, it's within, you know, even for-profit, super lucrative, successful companies. Uh, it's what Clayton Christensen wrote about, which is called the innovator's dilemma. It's when you're experiencing success, it's very hard sometimes to keep pushing the innovation, right? We tend to try to innovate when we're in duress, <laughs> right? Because we're forced to. Um, and I think, um, you know, it's this idea of having to articulate your next S-curve before your current one is declining. And that's hard for us to do. And I think what it comes down to is, is just sort of a human challenge, which is the way our limbic system is, is built, that we flare up, our amygdala flares up whenever something new comes around and our desire to fight or, you know, run from it or squash that brilliant new idea, it's real. That, that, tend, that human tendency, that natural instinct to fear newness is just, it's, it's, in, it's, it's part of all of us. We can't, we can't ignore it. Um, so that's, that's, I think the barrier is, is our, it's so hard for our brains to also project out into the future and care about the future when the emergent and the current seem to consume our daily lives, right? Mm -hmm. So I think um, that's, that's, that's just a, that's a barrier across um, all different kinds of organizations. Um, how do we, how do we instead orient ourselves as learning organizations or having some sort of learning agenda where we learn from the failures, we, we try, we, we keep kind of experimenting. It's not necessarily, you know, the idea of failing fast or, you know, um, all, all these different concepts don't really fly so well in, in higher ed, <laughs> right? You're not, it's not welcome to necessarily have that kind of failure. And unfortunately we're in a moment where we do need to um, experiment more deeply with our models um, given these kind of tectonic shifts that are occurring. Yeah, and it's hard from a, from a leader's perspective, I think it's hard for leaders to keep the gas pedal yeah. uh, down given what it takes, given everything you've just said, which I, I agree with. Have, have you seen the movie Don't Look Up by chance? I'm only halfway through it right now. Okay, it's a tough, it's, I found it a tough watch, but the reason I'm bringing it up is it's actually a wonderful illustration of what you're talking about, about human nature, uh, the, the difficulty to face the threats that are right in front of you, which in this case is this giant meteor that's about to crash into earth and destroy earth and all living things as we know it. And uh, as I'm listening yeah. to you, I'm reminded of the movie actually. No, it's, it's a great corollary because when we think about the way academia is structured, even in online institutions, even in working adults serving institutions, um, we still tend to separate our operations from the academic side of the house. And so what inevitably occurs is if the academic side of the house doesn't have insight into or visibility into the workings of the university, it's hard for them to care about the, the meteor coming, right? And in, in higher ed, the meteors are coming from a bunch of different directions, right? You have this huge shadow sector of education that is gaining traction. 
lots of short form credentials by venture backed companies, right? Huge million person um, uh, platforms that are that are doing great work, right? And we we tend to ignore it, like ah, oh, that's not what we do. Um, we also see more and more folks going online, right? It's like, ah, oh, but that's different from what we do, right? And uh, it's hard because I think we tend to silo those two areas. And I think it's really important for our faculty members, our staff members to have a really clear understanding of this shifting marketplace so that the strategic goals of the university resonate more clearly with them. Without that kind of context, it's hard for them to care about, you know, a fast consolidating online market or the shadow sector of education that's coming to, to serve the same population of learners. Um, so it's really kind of trying to get alignment around a strategic vision means that both sides of the house have to have a better understanding of, of how they, how they um, interrelate. And I think we've tended to kind of separate them in the past and now. Yes. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. So I want to, um, we have a couple minutes left and I, I have to ask you what advice you're giving these days to uh, maybe to current college students about how to think about their long life pathway. It's a good question. I think, um, First, it's it's hard, I think, for a current uh, college-going student to fathom that this is not necessarily the end of their learning journey, right? Because there's so much that goes towards the completion of that degree or that credential. And one hopes that that's it, right? That I'm somehow secured a slot in middle-class um, stability, but it just doesn't work that way, right? And I think we're far beyond the point at which, you know, when you did actually seek out a post-secondary degree, it, it, it did give you that sense of stability. We're unfortunately just faced with a much more tumultuous future ahead of us. And so to go in with that open mindset that we are gonna actually have to return to learning is a, is a, is a big shift for a lot of our younger learners um, to think that it's not gonna be sort of, okay, I've sectioned off my education in the first quarter of my life. Now I get to earn a living and build a career. It's not that, it's not that separated, right? It's not that simple. And it's gonna be longer <laughs> uh, than, we, than we ever imagined. And so I think it's, it's that piece. And also to, to really begin to take a closer look um, at, those future learning providers and those future employers to see, are they really investing in me and building the skills I need for the future? It can't just be about placing them in and hoping they just kind of navigate it for themselves. I think we really need to, especially in this current moment where, where, where the, the employee, the potential job candidate has more, more say uh, it, it's time for the employer to begin to move and shift and cater more specifically to, to that potential job candidate. So it's really trying to understand how the employer is going to invest in my talent, right? We talk about how talent is the most, um, you know, valuable asset in a company, but show me how, how are you going to actually build me as, um, as that sense of human capital that you, you talk about, right? How do you, how do you actually value that? So that's great advice for our upcoming college graduates to have on their 
their radar as they're interviewing with uh, prospective employers. I have one of those in my household, so I will have to pass, I'll pass along that, that guidance from you. That's, uh, it makes a lot of sense, sense to me. That, do, you, do you see a place for the four-year degree as you, look, as you look to the future? Is the four-year degree, the baccalaureate degree, still going to be relevant, do you think? For sure. I, I think it's hard. I think it's uh, disingenuous for people who have four-year degrees to dismiss the importance of a four-year degree. I mean, just from a financial ROI perspective, the data is very, very clear that people with a four-year degree end up just earning more lifetime earnings. Um, it's just, it's hard to deny that kind of, that, that sort of very specific kind of ROI. Um, that doesn't mean, however, that the four-year degree is good as is. It doesn't need to change. All those things that I shared around really breaking down the barriers and silos of disciplines and thinking about problem-based learning that is truly interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary um, is, is incredibly powerful. I think David Epstein's work on range, right, and yes. cultivating analogical thinkers, people who can take ideas from different domains and apply them in a seemingly unrelated area. Those are the kinds of skill sets we really need to be working on with all of our learners. And that's just not typically how we, how we educate today. Um, it's it's a nice to have and awesome if you get it from, from your professor, but it's not the way we kind of build it into our curricula. Mm. So I have one final question, and that is this. What are you thinking about or working on right now that you find to be particularly exciting? Um, a, new, a new innovation, an insight, or a project that has captured your attention? Yeah, really, uh, I think the, the ones that are, that are exciting and, and kind of... Uh, slightly more sexy projects to work on are around how we think about artificial intelligence in our learning environment. And how do we think about, if you think about the different kinds of mobile apps, for instance, that delight you, right, in our different kinds of consuming experiences. And then you think about the way that we offer up education to prospective learners today, there's just a huge disconnect, right? There's in terms of the level and the way that we're thinking about engaging with a prospective learner. So thinking about um, more of that consumer grade experience and bringing it into higher ed, you know, how do you look at something like Airbnb or some other site that you love to kind of just browse on, right? And you look at the way that they're displaying information and pulling you in. How do we then translate some of those into the way that we produce a learning environment or even present a potential opportunity for a learner? Those are kind of fun things to think about because I think we're we're pretty far behind when it comes to uh, you know the digital infrastructure that we provide uh, in in our online experiences at least. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Just generally, yeah. yeah, that's very exciting stuff to think about. So the user experience. Exactly. Uh, meets higher education. So we'll be watching. I'll, again, I'm going to be watching national to see what, what comes forward in that regard. So Michelle, I'm so grateful for your time. This has been a really rich and uh, valuable conversation. And I wish you all the best in your new role there at National Thank System. Thank you so much, Melissa. Great to be with you. Mm -hmm.